0: Hi, this is James Phillips. You're listening to Billy Brew Radio. Extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. Welcome to Billy Brew Radio. Yes, the uh, transformation is un- ongoing. The artist formerly known as The Manifesto with Billy Brew is now Billy Brew Radio. Of course, you're, we are here on the great WWWEAM 1100 in Atlanta. If you can't hear us on the air and everywhere, you can stream it live while you work at real1100.com. Another way would be download the Real 1100 app for your iPhone or Android. Another great way, Tune In Radio app. We're also out there on iHeartRadio. Billy Brew Radio has a Facebook page as well as an Instagram page and a LinkedIn page. We're all over the place. Yet there's more. We take this award-winning broadcast and convert it into a podcast, and we put it on the platforms such as Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. We'd like to say good morning to Sky for keeping this whole thing on the rails. Good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. Good. I, I, I think I put them on the spot. Sorry about that. Anyway, this hour of, the, of uh, Billy Brew Radio is sponsored by Haversham Home Solutions and Landscape. Fall is here, and fall is the ideal time to plant your trees and shrubs. The folks at Habersham Home Solutions and Landscape can help. They can help you with a landscape design and installation for your project, landscape enhancement to complement your existing landscape, flower beds, pine straw, pine nuggets, general yard cleanup, handyman services also available, electrical services, drywall, painting, Junk removal, and general household projects. So give Habersham Home Solutions and Landscape a call for a free estimate. 770 616 5979. That's 770 616 5979. Solutions for your home and landscape. Habersham Home Solutions and Landscape. How's the time? And it feels like fall. So yeah, give those guys a call. 770 616 5979. All right. Well, if you're a longtime listener of the show, thank you very much for supporting this show. And if you're a brand new listener, welcome. Uh, I think you'll really get a lot of good information this hour. And, uh, I kind of, I'm kind of in my mind snickering. This is a North Fulton class of 82 reunion on this show. Um, we, but anyway, on a serious note, this is a, this is going to be an hour about recovery. And addiction and how maybe, you know, we have to, we'll have two people here that have gone through it. And maybe if you hear their stories and you know someone who might be going through addiction and recovery and you hear their stories, it may be an inspiration to you. Anyway, um, my in-studio guest is uh, Amanda Ippolito. Good morning.
1: Good morning. How is everybody?
0: <laughs> Excellent. Uh, you were here um, a couple of months ago. Talk about your story, and then, um, thank you very much for coming back to do the show because I think uh, you got a lot of positive information.
1: It's a pleasure, Bill. It's a real pleasure. Thank you.
0: You're oh, you're welcome. And all the way from Athens, Georgia, another classmate of mine, but he's brand new to the show. Please welcome Mr. Steve Webb. Hey, Bill. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you? I'm
2: good. Good. And hello, to Mandy.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is. We all three graduated in the same class. Isn't that funny? That's very funny. But the, yeah. but that you know, our stories aren't necessarily funny. But and I thank you, Steve, for doing the show. It's uh, it, it takes a lot of guts to talk about uh, what you went through and and what uh, Amanda has been through. So um, let's just, uh, Steve, give us a little bit of background about uh, you and um, and how maybe you fell into uh, addiction. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I'm. Um I'm a prodigy of a, prodigy son of an alcoholic family, so I had alcoholism in the family, and um, you know, so pretty early on, I was heading in that direction. And you know, there are those that said, talk about the um, g- genetic predisposition to alcoholism, so I feel that I'm in I'm in that category for sure, but. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's, I drank for a long time, and I've got kind of a long story uh, that goes along with all of that and different as it escalated over the years. Sure. But, you know, today I'm grateful to find what I found and, um, you know, be in recovery today. So
0: Well, and everybody's stories is different. And I I was going to ask, uh, I had it on one of my uh, notes here on my sheet. It's like, how much is heredity? uh part of your makeup it was part of mine i mean you know i as a kid i were going to uh parties with my parents and everybody was smoking and drinking you know uh, you know and that's what everybody did so yeah. i was exposed to it very early
2: yeah i mean we all you know there's a lot of people that come out with you know families that partied and did this and that and don't have you know alcoholism or um the disease of addiction and so it's not to blanket um, effect that everybody that has a family that parties is going to turn out, you know, actually, actually being alcoholic. But, you know, I don't know. It, it seemed normal to me too, Bill. Like you say, it, yeah. it just, um, and I think it's interwoven in our society, you know, pretty much that having fun and, and socializing is just associated with drinking. So,
0: yeah.
2: wasn't anything different to me. Um, you know, that I would be, uh,
0: that I would be drinking yeah no i'm 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 with you, and Amanda, were you around as a kid uh, uh, people who drank a lot
2: oh absolutely,
1: yeah, um, I mean, not only you know certainly the the neighborhood people drank, the uh business associates of my parents drank, and uh absolutely coming from an Italian family, oh, yes, you know I can see that, that was i mean part of part of the fun of that was after dinner. You know, the big several course dinner when everyone's kind of dozing. Yeah. The kids would go under the table and and go around and, you know, grab everybody's wine glass that was mostly empty and just drink those last few sips. That was kind of a a fun and expected thing, you know, just harmless fun as a kid. But um, so I was never – I was not afraid of alcohol. You know, I, I couldn't tell you exactly when I had my first drink. Okay. Because I've, I've, I've tasted alcohol many times Even yeah. in my childhood
0: I, I, do, I, I do have a funny story about mine um, I, I, From what I understand From my mom and dad They told me that one time They left a beer somewhere Like three quarters full And I found it at age five And just guzzled it And 35 years later, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, hence the name Billy Brew. Thank you very much. But uh, okay. yeah, so I guess this, I don't know these days if kids, you know, I, I, I've i been clean for five years, a little over five years, and, and it really, my kids noticed right away. And that was, uh, I, when I went into it, two things. I wanted to clear my head, and but I didn't realize the effect it would have on my children, the positive effect. Right. And it, it, do you notice that, Steve? What, what was your reasoning to, what made you? Well, I, you know, you know, Amanda has uh, we told about Everybody, when they finally go to recovery, has to have a bottoming out, uh, hit hit rock bottom. What was your rock bottom, if you don't mind sharing?
2: Are you talking to Steve? Or I'm maybe? sorry. Yes,
0: sir. Yes, I, <laughs> Yes, sir. Yes.
2: <laughs> Me. Yes, please. Okay, yeah. Gosh, Bill, I I had several episodes with with that particular um thing. I mean, of course in the end it finally wound down to a place where uh where I was, but I had attempted recovery a few times and, you know, a lot of my a lot of my story involves uh legal stuff, you know. I had a hard time staying uh within the boundaries of the law. So, I was sentenced uh couple of times by judges in different counties around Atlanta to go to places for a year or more. Um, That that was in in two episodes. Um, So I got exposed to recovery a long time ago, Um, and that was more, you know, like I say, I was appointed by a judge. So it was either do that or serve time. And I'd taken the easy way out. You know, I would go and uh, stay in these places and do what I had to do not to go to jail. And, you know, I I was clean. And then, regrettably, I, I, on, you know, the first time that I was exposed to that, you could say that was a bottom. I mean, I was convicted of a fourth DUI. I was, um, you know, having trouble keeping a job. And kind of living you know not on the streets but just place to place to place, and that would be considered a bottom you know a a very hard place to be, but I still didn't really understand the concept that I had no control over my drinking, so when I got done with that program and and you know was got my driver's license back and this and that and the other, I drank again and then I proceeded to get a 50 UI down in Florida and they sent me back up here and I went to a program again. I had to go for this time. I had to go for two years and I had several other arrests in between. And um, so I had quite a long rap sheet um, at that period of my life. So that was, I think after that, it, it, uh, it got bad enough. I remember being in that jail and I, got out and I think I went to the hotel room that night and had a couple of beers. And then the next day I was picked up and, uh, taken to Athens. I was transported to Athens, um, up here to go to a recovery center here. So that was pretty much the beginning of my re- serious recovery. Um,
0: well, and, 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 and I, I think Amanda would back us. Uh, I think recover- everybody's rock bottom is completely different it, yes. it did, yeah. you don't have to wind up on a hospital floor or, or you know on the floor ODing right. to have a rock bottom exactly it, it's a it sound like with you steve it was a gradual thing
2: it was and and you know after that i did i drank again uh regrettably and um it was just that i recognized i'd, I'd had like I say, exposure to recovery and and understood and was beginning to understand that what I you know that I had a problem and that I wasn't going to be able to manage things on my own and um that's a big part of what we discuss, of course, and I know that language may sound different uh to those that don't um have addiction problems, but that's kind of the reality of it and so finally, just after about um Three months of drinking, and I hadn't had a drink in two years. I found myself in the worst place I'd ever been in my life, and I, I really had got myself, and it was in short order because the, the disease had progressed to a point, and I was in a uh, detox unit, <clears throat> and then transported to a hospital, and I was in pretty bad, serious shape with, um, with my addiction, so. That was, I got out of there January the 2nd, 2008, and I have not had a drink since. So my bottom was kind of like that. It was kind of in the hospital um, being, you know, not brought back to life, but, you know, they were monitoring me at the time.
0: Well, congratulations on your sobriety and congratulations on surviving that time. And Amanda, yeah. let me ask you a question. And I, I can tell you the last time I had a drink, July twenty second. Why does everybody remember the last time?
1: Well, I think it's important to remember it because yeah. uh, you're it. It helps you kind of keep track of uh, you know where you were and where you are today, and. Um, it also, like Steve, it's interesting you would say that because my sobriety date is January fourth of two thousand eleven. <laughs> okay, so, is that kind of like a resolution uh, thing? Or? It, oh it, well, you know, I was I was picked up. Um, oh, you had no choice. I guess I was picked up. Yeah, yeah violation of a uh, of probation. So I ended mm. up in the back of a police car. But really, I had been really struggling um, for the last ninety days, kind of that I was out there. Yeah. Just I was just at my wits' end. And what wits I had, you know, but it's, I think one thing that's, um, you know, even though you can be exposed to recovery, recovery principles, good people that are doing well in recovery and are really motivating, sometimes it's still just hard to get through your mind that it's not the second or third one that makes you drunk. It's the first one. Oh. So that little reservation that I could have just one and just get a little... You know, relax Mm -hmm. Or relieve some stress That has to be smashed And we we have to be absolutely Convinced That it's the first one that does it for us
0: I, I never thought about that Because when I drank I knew how much it would take to get buzzed for well, me yeah. and how much it take if I wanted to get hammered And that's never a good number to ever know ever Oh you know? yeah,
1: my number was six Yeah, I know yeah.
0: what you mean <laughs> now, 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 man, the uh regarding um, the receptors We were talking before we went on the air Like the opiate, the receptors in your brain Is it different for alcohol than it is with drugs Or is it basically the same thing?
1: Uh, you know, I think with the rece- the thing about the receptors Is, um, you know, for opiates anyway it's a strong attachment to receptors on your brain. It blocks you from really feeling anything good other than the drug. And yes. it just keeps telling you more, more, mm-hmm. more, more. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the chemistry with alcohol is similar, but, uh, but the physical withdrawal is, uh, you know, maybe slightly different. Really, alcohol is one of the most dangerous physical withdrawals and you can you can certainly be put yourself in a critical condition coming off yeah. alcohol coming off drugs it's mainly the terror of it and you do feel sick
0: so I the mean, actual physical does it's it hurts but but you're you're terrified to not be on the drug or
1: well because you have been going under the bi- or going under the the cycle of I need more to feel okay I need more to feel okay I need more to feel okay, to feel okay. and after some time doing that the thought of not having it is terrifying. And, you know, I'll just quickly, uh, you know, I don't know how many people smoke cigarettes anymore, but I still (laughs) smoke cigarettes. And uh, so I knew I had a new pack of cigarettes. And last night after dinner, I went to, you know, get a cigarette. And I couldn't find them. And I knew I had this pack of cigarettes. I knew I had just had it. I had seen it within the last hour, but I couldn't find it anywhere. And I started to get that feeling of,
0: Really, an anxious, panic I got, mode. I, yeah,
1: I got anxious. I was like, "Where are my cigarettes? What is going on here?" I know I have some, so I ended up getting in my car, driving to the gas station, getting another pack of cigarettes, just because the anxiety. If I had known I didn't have any, it'd be different. Yeah, you know, but knowing that it was out there and it should be available to me right now. Yeah, that was like, so I, if that's something that maybe someone who's quit smoking can relate to. Yeah, that that feeling of how am I going to get through this next you know 5 minutes or 10 minutes or am I going to turn my whole house upside down looking for this? Yeah. You know.
0: And and I know the feeling. I remember uh when uh, we all remember when they didn't sell alcohol on Sunday. So you you made that beer run on Saturday night.
2: Absolutely, sure.
0: You know. And, and Steve, did you have any withdrawals physically?
2: I guess I did. Um I you know, I like to say I I, I was pretty much hankering for a drink. I know um this last time for over a year I mean i I, I knew at three thirty four thirty in the afternoon I would have been drinking by then and when I wasn't um, you know that lingered on for quite some time and I think what Mandy brings up is real important because it is true you know the the where i where I work now is mo- a lot more dealing with the opioid problem and young people and crystals meth and things like that so um but alcohol is the slow killer it's it's uh it's really it it is the most dangerous one i believe but um you know they all lead to death eventually and um when alcohol is so
0: prevalent in in movies and sports you know alcohol ads are all around you and yeah and it's but you don't see opioid ads all around you you know
2: um yeah so what was but the, but,
0: yeah go ahead i'm sorry
2: yeah just the you know the withdrawal it was just but it was so good to be sober and i felt so much better and you know most of the day i felt really good and and i was coming along and getting back um into leading a normal life and and you know i just say that's just my own personal story with it i i wasn't necessarily banging down the walls every day to get a drink it wasn't that bad but I did have that feeling every afternoon and then after about 13 months of not drinking or doing any having any chemicals in my body um, I remember waking up you know and just not I'd been through a whole day or two or three days and I hadn't had one thought of a drink and um I just it's Really, I guess the first time in my life I'd ever really experienced that. And so it just, that propelled me to want to really get involved in recovery. And I think that's, you know, I could say for myself that that's kind of where my real recovery began, um, because I got a lot more involved. I started working in the field and, and I was, you know, and I still to this day am pretty much involved, um, you know, every day of my life I'm involved in it and I want to be. Um, it's uh, it's just encouraging, you know, that I can come from where I came from and be where I am now and and to see that in other people. So uh, just keeping that going is enough good stuff, you know, that I don't really think about all the bad stuff. And um, in the beginning, it wasn't so easy because I did have that chemical. I, I feel like I I definitely suffered from a chemical addiction. In other words, my body was just so used to having something yeah. um that it just took me a long time. And so um I don't think that's the case for everybody. I've heard of people losing the urge to drink in one day. Um but that just wasn't the case for me.
0: Well, I can I can selfishly say on on July 23rd I didn't think about alcohol. I just stopped. And I it, it, is that mm-hmm. possible? I I didn't do a 12 step. I didn't I just said I'm done. This is not fun anymore. And more more than anything, I
2: wanted to clear my head. So is is
0: that possible? I did it.
2: Absolutely. I've heard, you know, I've heard of that story. Um I would venture to say, Bill, that you're not an alcoholic.
0: But I drank beer but, for a long, but, long, long time. But I never drank yeah. in the morning. It was always 5.01 <laughs> until the last beer at, at night, whatever that was,
2: you know? <laughs> But I don't want to kick you out of the club or anything. I mean, you can be an alcoholic if you want to be. I can't say you know. I don't know, man. I don't know.
1: Hey, Steve, something that you said um, that's really unique to people in recovery from drugs and alcohol that's so important is this is the only chronic medical condition where the members who are in recovery feel the strong desire, the strong need, and it really – follow through with bringing other people out of the pit, you know, wanting to be there, wanting to do that. And that's something really unique about people in recovery. And it's one thing that I think more people should talk about is how resilient we are and how willing we are to help other people because you don't, Mm -hmm. you don't really see that in, in any other disease. I don't see a lot of people that are coming back from diabetes or asthma Mm -hmm. Running around and promoting, hey, yeah. you know you can stick yeah. to your your regime and and you can <laughs> have you can twinkie. make it and yeah you, you know, <laughs> and you can have you know, and you can have a longer life and hey, you don't have to have your foot amputated if you just do this, you know. So yeah. that's one thing yeah. that is really really special about people in recovery, and that's one thing I really love about the recovery movement is that we are out there for each other. And you know, I think uh, you know whether you're. you're recovery is based on uh, a 12-step program or faith or, you know, supporting people with goals and smart recovery, just whatever Mm -hmm. it is, that the common thread is that we all believe that helping other people is what helps us stay sober for our own lives. And even even Bill here, who may or may not be an alcoholic. I don't know.
0: Probably am. I don't know. But –
1: even him having the tendency to want to promote yeah. and and talk about a difficult subject. This is a difficult subject. A lot of people want to sweep it under the rug, mm-hmm. pretend, pretend it's not happening in their neighborhoods and their families. You know, considering you know something that happens as an isolated incident and not as the real reality of our culture today.
0: And and when I found out about. Um, when other people found out that I stopped drinking, they would be very um conscious of bill, is it okay if I have a beer around you? Of course you're an adult, sure. enjoy your life, you yeah. know don't do anything just don't just don't do anything silly to me and I, I kind of a running joke you know take, uh, invite me out I'm free uber all you want you know so,
1: exactly exactly <laughs> another thing that um the, you mentioned Steve was uh you know like the first the first twelve months um you know, some things happen, you know, for instance, uh, we start to get more friends that are, are clean and sober or people who are non-addicts. Um, there's less illegal activity and certainly less incarceration. And, you know, people tend to, they may or may not have a setback or two, you know, around that that date that we like yes. to call our sobriety date. But, you know, people start experiencing less of the challenges, um, less homelessness, less violence, less um, victimization. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we start seeing people who are not using, um, instead of being drawn to the people who are using, we're drawn to the people who are not using at home, at work, and in in social settings. So that's, that's kind of a thing then, you know, kind of in that first three years, um, we just really eliminate illegal activity. And, um, you know, for some people... Illegal income is mm-hmm. is a big thing that can really be a trigger. You know whether it's selling drugs, mm-hmm. um, you know doing yep. some other illegal thing to get income, and uh, you know for women. And I know that Athens really addresses this well with the Diva Center. Um, people who are, are coming out of you know prostitution, <clears throat> and the sex trade, um, but you know within one to three years of recovery, there's a virtual of elimination of that, that type of activity. And then, of course, there's the better housing, the better living situations, um, the increased employment, the increased income. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just beyond that, it's just a growth Mm -hmm. of, you know, social support, spiritual support. Um, Your mental health gets better because, you know, when you've been putting a substance in your brain that affects your brain, your mental health is is not going to be as sharp um, and you're, you you may be self medicating another another mental health issue that you didn't know about, and now you know about that, and you're taking care of yourself in that way. Um, of course, your your housing and your living situation continues to improve, and uh, then usually, you know, in that in that mark, there's a dramatic increase in your earning capability, um, in your ability to keep a job, be employed, mm-hmm. and you know, living above. The poverty line.
0: And this question is for both of you. Um, When you're having that passion to help these people, um, how patient do y'all have to be with individual recovery? Okay, there's Joe over there, and he's really struggling. But you have to be patient. How is patience a key factor in what y'all do in recovery, as far as helping others?
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I would say it really is. It's especially I think as you gain more knowledge about recovery. Um, I mean, I know for myself, and I. The hardest time I had with this, I think, and, it, and I, I happen to believe in the, in the concept that it this is a spiritual program, and I, I really think that I was just so fortunate that God put things in front of me uh, for me to see and experience and witness, you know, directly that helped me to understand, you know. Um, the reality of of the position that I was in because um, I don't know that Mandy touched on so many things that I've, that I could, that I could address here, but I just, you know, I did not know. I just didn't know. I didn't know I was just so far flung from reality. I, I was so lost in that world and, you know, talking about the consequences of, of the actions of being in that lifestyle, and especially, you know, I do work right next door um, where I work now to the to the women's um, program here, one of the larger women's programs here in here in Athens, and we do a lot to help them because um, a lot of them have children and so forth, and no no support whatsoever, and are coming off the streets and you know have addiction issues and so forth. So. Um, you know, you don't get diagnosed with asthma or cancer or um, diabetes, for instance, and they come and throw you in jail and take your kids away <laughs> yeah. and, no. No. you know, you wind up waking up one day and your car's been totaled up against a phone pole. Um, that's the kind of stuff that this disease, you know, incurs. I mean, you do get locked up. You do lose your kids. Um, you do lose your job. Um, these are these are things that are just typical um and you wind up you know wherever you wind up and you know it's uh I guess, like Mandy's saying, some exposure to a normal life it's just amazing to watch it, you know, and see that that that's so true it's it's we we come to discover that we don't need to self medicate anymore and and get into that you know horrible lifestyle, and um how much better life is without it um but I now see I lost my train of thought because I got. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, man. Keep rolling, that, keep rolling. But, um,
0: did Steve at any time did you think, uh, as much as you and I drank, that you had it under control? So I got this.
2: All the time. Yeah. I mean, I go in and out of it all the time, and there again, it's the only disease that tells you you don't have it. You know, right it's, it's, mm-hmm. I, I knew I'd been exposed to uh, recovery. You know, just like Mandy had talked about before, and, and and I knew a lot about it, you know, but I wasn't participating in that and taking the actual actions that were necessary to really stay sober. So those ideas come into our minds. Um, you know, the cigarette analogy is a great one. I mean, I haven't had a drink in a long time or done any drugs, but, you know, let me sit around long enough um, without really participating in my recovery and all those thoughts will come back. And if I let them linger long enough, um, I will go drink. I mean, that's, that's for sure.
0: So that's interesting, so, Steve, because Mandy, Amanda's here shaking her head. It's you got to keep your mind occupied.
2: Yeah. You gotta, you gotta keep things going on. And, and you know, it's, um, I've been to college, and and I'm an old man in school, and I think I've told you that before, Bill. You <laughs> yeah, know about yeah. me going to school and all that, and and all these things that are possible, and all these all these things we can do without without the drugs and alcohol. And and you see a lot of people in recovery go back to college, you know, and that's older right. ages and things like that. So it is important, I think, to keep busy. Absolutely. You know, um, that's a good point. Well,
0: all right. Uh, this might be a good point to, uh, to take a quick break. Uh, more with Amanda Ippolito and Steve Webb about recovery. And uh, you're listening to Billy Bureto. We'll be right back. Song is called "I Don't Think So" by the wonderful Payphone Poets. Uh, we're having a great hour of uh, talking about addiction and recovery with uh, Steve Webb in Athens, Georgia, and Amanda Ippolito here in the studio. And uh, off uh, during that break, Steve, uh, uh, Mandy, and I were talking about: are, are, Is there such a thing as a functioning either alcoholic or addict?
1: Hello. Hey. Hello. Are you there? Hey.
0: Did, did, you, did you walk away from the phone? <laughs> are you there? <laughs>
2: I had to stop my coffee pot. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> no That's worries. Important. But what I was going
0: to say Steve, and, and to both of y'all, is is there such a thing as a functioning alcoholic or functioning addict?
1: Personally I think there are people who function um at high levels? Even at high levels. Um I think that over time almost everybody's gonna gonna fall into a, a place that they don't like being in and you know whether it's the physical wear down of being a different person at, de- at during the day than than you are at night um the effect on your family um because you know at work you're this person but then at home you're you're this other person and again when you're harboring a secret or when you're holding a part mm. of you you know when you've got two separate lives yeah. essentially going on that takes a toll on you mentally mm. and even physically so I know a lot of people that do great, and you know the only time I might have seen them because I don't see them at work is when they're absolutely you know it faced uh, <laughs> yes. or or something else. I also yeah. know, I mean, I know one woman who was a, a professor at you know at one of our esteemed universities yeah. here, and she was a heroin addict, wow. and she functioned just fine. And then, you know, an ancillary person caused a legal issue to come up with her, and, and that's what that's what stopped her in her profession. But nobody knew. Nobody had any idea. She was tenured. Wow. And uh, so, you she know. She probably
0: thought she was bulletproof. I got this. Well, yeah, yeah,
1: sure. You know, and I think a lot of people, you know, in her personal life knew what was going on, yeah. but nobody in her professional life had any idea. Um but she never really – she's never really been able to recover, I think, because she's not been able to, to get – she can, she can only reflect on being able to hide that for so many years. And that's like her, her thing, you know, pride sometimes – pride is, is very dangerous in recovery because, oh, uh, you know, sense. for me, uh, you know, when I, when I am working with somebody and they are having some setbacks, I have to remember that I had setbacks for years before I was able to have long-term recovery. So yeah. I can't judge somebody.
0: Um, and is that where your patience comes in, with them?
1: I'm not even going to call it patience. I'm going to call it a shared experience. Okay. So I have to go back to that time where it wasn't easy for me. I have to go back to that time where, you know, I'm at the, at the treatment place and, you know, I run into somebody at the grocery store. And, mm-hmm. you know, because I grew up here. Yeah, I went to treatment here, so you know it's the same stomping grounds, the same people. I see people, but um, it was you know early in recovery, seeing that person, it kind of triggered me. But then I started thinking, you know, if I if I talk to this person, what's going to happen? Maybe he's going to mention something else that's going to trigger me. Yeah. Then you know, so I'm going to go down that road. But you know, fortunately, um, my personal experience has shown me, you know, at that point. In January of, 19, of 2011, okay, that's not something I'm going to do. But if you're if you don't have any recovery experience, you got to rely on somebody else's recovery experience sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, to to be able to to hear these stories and know that um, hey, that happened to her, but she didn't choose to talk to that person or or, good, or take that person's number again yeah. or walk away with that person. You know, she was able to find a strength not to do that. So. So I'm going to have to do that. But, you know, I I know people and I work with people that, you know, they're still what I'm going to say. They're in early recovery. You know, their sobriety date is is still changing, but they're still trying. They're still trying. And as long as someone has a desire, then I'm I'm going to
2: walk with them.
0: Absolutely. Steve, Uh, was alcohol your downfall or did you dabble into any other things?
2: Oh, God, I'd do anything you put in front of me. <laughs> here, here. I had a couple of drinks, but, I, you know, I claim to be a pure alcoholic pretty much because everything, every spree with me started with a drink and ended with a drink. But I did plenty of other stuff in between. And I, I, the term functioning alcoholic, i like to chime in on that for a minute. Yeah, please. Um, I hear that a lot. And, I, you know, what Mandy's kind of shared with us here t- today is the reality of it is you just don't know and, and you would assume that somebody's quote unquote functioning I find that terminology to be quite a misnomer you know functioning an alcoholic in the same sentence is just kind of like doesn't really fit with me <clears throat> but um and there again having the patience you know with people this is where I hear most often I hear that term most often from a wife or a mother or a brother or sister or family member of an alcoholic, and being a person that does not um, have alcoholism or understand have an understanding of the disease concept, and they will say he's alcoholic but he's a functioning alcoholic, and therefore it almost gives a uh, free pass, you know, A license, yeah. um, it's okay to be an alcoholic, but they're functioning. And I just, there's so many underlying psychological problems that are going on. And so many instances of trauma that are being um, put on the family while someone is quote unquote functioning yet participating in heroin addiction or alcoholism or whatever it may be, um, that that gets overlooked, and that I think one of the the biggest things that i you know that I find challenging is and also in the professional community um people who graduate college with with degrees and go into mental health or um, um addiction type counseling and stuff that aren't addicts themselves and really don't have a true understanding of it. I'm not saying all don't there are a lot a lot of people that do. But the stigma of not understanding the disease, and this is what I go through with my family, that's where I have to exercise the most patience. And I, I agree that I, I don't really have to have patience with someone that's new other than I have to come to an understanding of, yes, I was in the same place, mm-hmm. although it can be difficult to watch someone over and over and over again um it just hurts to watch it. So, you Steve, know, Steve watch you had to practice. It to you had to practice, and you know that there's a solution, yeah. and you're kind of like, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to watch, but um, the the thing with, I think, if people, you know, if you have someone in the family that you know is an alcoholic, and yet you don't really want to face the facts and talk about it, it's it's just, you know, in my family, I've got the same thing because there are some people that. In my family that are not alcoholic, and through everything we've been through, you know, still just do not have a clue as to what it really means. And, um, I think it's hard to, um, get that understanding across to people, but we've come a long way. I mean, you look at all of th- that's available for recovery now, as opposed to, I mean, stories that I've heard from people that have been at this way longer than me talk about, you know, even 30 years ago, um, how, you know, they just didn't have what we have today. And, um, so it's just, it's get definitely getting better you know i think with the public understanding i don't think this is something that's discussed enough um with people and families to try to heal you know the wounds that that come along with alcoholism and addiction but um i would say that it is it it's a you know it's improving i see it year to year to year i mean here in athens we have an amazing recovery community and there are new places opening that are just doing, you know, spectacular things in that they're getting a lot of involvement and we have a couple that are taking people directly from jail and, you know, which is kind of, you know, I'm I'm a little bit involved with that also, but um, you know, things like that where it's just easier to approach recovery, I think if we have more knowledge about it. Mm-hmm. Um and that holds true for people suffering from the disease and all the people around the the addict or alcoholic. So there's my two cents. No. It...
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Steve, I do want to say, I mean, I certainly, I mean, I agree that, you know, functioning and alcoholic, they don't really work together. I totally agree with you on that. Um, and you brought out a really good point about the trauma. So trauma, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of a lot of people want to say, well, why did you become an addict? Why are you doing this? You know, what, what caused you to go here? And, you uh, know, what, what I'm seeing more and more in my work is that people have suffered from trauma. And sometimes it is the trauma of being in a family where right. alcoholism was existing. You know, sometimes um, it's sexual abuse, early childhood sexual abuse. And, you know, I used to think that that was very rare. And, <clears> you know, now... Um, you know the statistic one one in six females and one in four males have been sexually abused, and you know the preponderance of that unfortunately is maybe not an immediate family member but an extended family member so um, yeah. you know trauma plays yeah. a big part, and we are submitting ourselves to trauma just in our addictions, you know seeing things we shouldn 't see um, uh-huh. and uh, so you know trauma. Trauma is a, a big force in perpetuating self medication, mm-hmm. alcoholism, drug use, and uh trauma informed care I think is really, really important that, you know, instead of saying, Why are you like this, maybe asking the yeah. question, hey, what what happened? And then listening to the person, you know, listening, the listening skill. Is so, so very important.
0: When mentoring uh, the people in the program, uh, and this question is for both of you, do um, I totally lost my training thought? Cool. Let's go to another bullet point then. Um, okay. <laughs> how, how about, what about, um, is the medical community involved in this kind of thing in recovery? Other than like, other than a detox, you know, you just got to do that. But then as far as ongoing treatment, is, is there any involvement? Or would it be, if, if not, would that be a good idea? Or is it more just psychological?
1: Okay. Um, so, you know, medical, there's uh, medication-assisted therapy. And medication-assisted therapy usually, you know, involves, um, you know, some sort of substance that maybe mimics uh, the effects of uh, particularly a, a pain medication. Um it, Yet it, it doesn't allow you to continue to use um, those medications with the same – like you're not going to get the same effect from them. Mm-hmm. But it's it's maybe a small – it's a small dose of, of one thing and, and a small dose of other, which basically keeps you from going through that fear period of getting off that substance. But doesn't re- – you can't really effectively you know, use and and get that same outcome. The- so – there, I mean, medication-assisted therapy is widely used now, and I think it's important for people to have a way to get off. My hope, um, you know, and I do come from a, a mainly a 12-step background, I'm going to say that, so I'm completely open to any pathway of recovery, but it's my hope that um, at some point in their recovery that this person will start to gain the skills to be able to step down and eventually be free from all substances.
0: So it's kind of like weaning?
1: So it's kind of a weaning process, yes. Now, um, and it's very, for some people, this is really the very best way, okay? Um, But it's not the way that, that, you know, I detoxed in jail. That was lovely.
0: Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) Not a lot of comprehensive programs in jail.
1: It's not too comprehensive. But, um, but, you know, I mean, I did it. I didn't want Mm -hmm. to do it again. That was a motivator for me. Um, as far as the medical profession goes, I mean, I think that medical professionals should just be aware of um, really that you know one one person who's been through it helping another. Uh, the just the strong. I mean, it's been since the inception of um, Alcoholics Anonymous and, and the Oxford Group many many years ago. Uh, that's been something that has worked for people is having someone with a shared experience helping them, and that's you know the premise of peer support. Um, you know, it may not involve the twelve steps, but it's still someone with the experience helping another come out of it. So the medical profession, I mean, certainly to be stabilized, certainly to to check you out, make sure that you're not having a lot of other problems, um, having a mental health evaluation. I definitely think is something that a lot of people. Should do rather than not do, you know, because sometimes there is an underlying mental health concern like, you know, my ADHD. That is something that, uh, you know, it just made me very, very susceptible to a drug like cocaine because Mm. the cocaine made me feel like I was functioning normally, like a normal person, like everyone else I see functioning and not struggling. So there's that um, and I think there's value in that. Definitely, and I do believe that some people need medication, yeah. pharmaceutical medication, to help them with their to become stable with their mental health. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure um, that it's my opinion. I'll just put it that way. It's my opinion that most people truly recover because they're around like-minded people
0: okay.
1: who are doing, uh, you know, activities that that are not.
0: Which
2: does make sense,
1: doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. So I don't know what's what's your experience Steve?
2: Yeah, you know I'm not exposed too much to um sort of the step down things uh medical things that are that are associated with getting people from uh there's an opiate section of our agency, but I'm not directly involved with with that, but I know that they're you know they're participating and using those things i I think a doctor <clears throat> or the medical community. You know, one thing is if you have a medical professional, you know, give you a diagnosis and you're sitting in the office and he says something like your liver is about to shut down, if you drink again, you're susceptible to die, that could be... They're looking at you medically, you know. True. Um, yeah. Are you going to live or die? You know, kind of thing. And it's important. And I and I think one of the things we do with one of the committees that I work with um, is communication with the public, um, with the professional community. Is we go and we speak to nurses and doctors, and we do a thing where we kind of tell our story and we kind of talk about. The you know the recovery process is through Alcoholics Anonymous, Um, and it's like I say, I think the awareness is is increasing. Um, Yeah, I just do, I just believe that because I just I run into more people that in the medical community that are more aware of it. I just to you know I've had guys come in and worked with that I've worked with a little bit that were given a diagnosis similar to the one that I previously mentioned. And decided that they wanted to live and, you know, got serious and started to, um, to really address the problem. And that could be considered what we call a bottom, like you were talking about at the beginning of the show. Um, and, and what, what lower level is there than that? If you're in a position where you're about to, uh, go into the several different stages of cirrhosis of the liver or, you know, whatever it may be, um, to To prompt you into looking at, you know, more serious into recovery.
0: Um, do, do any of the people y'all deal with um, ever talk about embarrassment because of the stigma? Oh, I was a heroin addict. Do, do, is that part of their guilt or whatever? It's like, oh, man, I, I can't believe I was a heroin addict. Does that come into play?
2: Stig, stigma I kills yeah With, you know like if you're in a if you're in the community of recovering people it's just everyday conversation <laughs> well, yeah, I, right. guess, I guess so yeah <laughs> I, mean, I mean like you know you're just like oh really you know i i i yeah i mean i'm that would be something that would keep you out of recovery is having that stigma and i think we all go through it yeah do,
0: do anybody has anybody in, in the in these programs that y'all are both individually in have talked about during their deep addiction about suicide now and you and I talked about it, uh, Amanda before we went on there in the in the drug part of it, it we don 't know if it 's a suicide or if they thought about it or they just went ahead and overdosed it could, could the overdose be a suicide
1: yeah, I mean sometimes uh, an accidental overdose. Um, is labeled to suicide and vice versa. Yeah. Okay. So there's that. Um, I think that um it's very uh, certainly when you have a mental health concern, whether it be a substance use disorder or any other, you know, type of depression or, or anything like that. Um suicide is a very serious subject, but I, I think what's important is that they're you know, finding someone to talk to. Yeah. Um we lose a lot of people and um I'd, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to say you know that it's not true, but yeah, you know I've I've been to a lot of funerals since I've been in recovery. Oh, because mm-hmm. people um, that you knew, obviously. people that I, I knew, people I've been to meetings with for a long time. Um, I go to, uh, I go to Cocaine Anonymous. I probably shouldn't say that on the radio, but. Um, because it's anonymous but it's but you know i mean it's it's a 12-step program for where we can also talk about drugs and not be offensive to alcoholics that may be like well i don't feel like i'm in the right place because these people are talking about drugs so you know in that program um of course it's open for all substances we don't care what what you use we just want to offer a solution and um you know there are accidental overdoses um and there are there are some people that do commit suicide because they they don't they can't find it within themselves to draw upon their strengths to get better, and that's an important thing. People need to know that they do have strengths, and sometimes just need to talk to somebody to get back to uh, where you can harness those strengths again and use them to better yourself. But um, you know, certainly, uh, suicide is an issue, but. It, I, in my opinion you know maybe um overdoses is more of an issue yeah, for people which
0: makes sense steve is this something you're going to do for the rest of your life is kind of getting involved in what you're doing now
2: yeah like um i'm in a, i have been i get to do something really really cool today uh this evening um and i'll you know focus on kind of what I'm doing right now, but I've got a a gentleman I've been working with that's going to pick up, um, that's going to celebrate his fifth year tonight. Awesome. Things like that, um, you know, it just, I'm looking forward to that all day. So, you know, this morning when I got up and and that's going to keep me, um, you know, focused on something really positive for my day to day. And I just you know i just try to stay involved to where um each and every day i can look at at the um at the benefits and and of what is going on with recovery as opposed to you know um getting back into that life i'm i'm just so grateful to be able to say that i just don't even think about that old life very much anymore um and i just It is a gift that keeps on giving, and if I can be a part of that for the rest of my life, I would choose to do nothing else. Um, You know, I I just get so much out of it. Amanda, um, I I do have a
0: quick question. We're almost out of time. Amanda, for the people here in Atlanta, how can they get in touch with the program that you're involved with?
1: Okay, well, they can call me on the phone.
0: Well, that's easy. easy. They still use the phone?
1: 404-662-1177. I work for Peers Empowering Peers, and we help connect people with recovery resources, of course, in our area, which is Fulton County, um, but also <clears throat> throughout the state. So if you need some help, feel free to call me. Also, I'd like to suggest the CARES Warm Line. That's a statewide thing. They're open from 8 a.m. until 11 p.m., and that's a toll-free number 844-326-5400 and you'd be speaking with someone in recovery um, if, about resources, or they just listen. Whatever you're thinking about, they'll listen to you.
0: Steve Webb, thank you so much for being on the show. You were fantastic, and thank you for being brave enough to talk about your story.
2: You are more than welcome. Thanks for having me, Bill, and thanks for doing what you're doing, man.
0: Uh, my pleasure, and Amanda, thank you again. Your second visit to the show. Yeah. You're going to have a third and a fourth, I promise you that. All right. So, Sky, thank you so much for being uh, the glue and thank y'all for listening hope y'all got something out of it it's a very serious and important but yet hopeful program Absolutely. that these people are doing so go with that next week we got a kill, kill guy. i just met him a few anyway a uh, motivational coach uh, stan i forgot his last name and he'll kill me but anyway he'll be in next week it's going to be great have a great weekend